0: Neil McCrady and Martin Palomo. Welcome to another edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCrady. Martin Palomo is with me today as well. Uh, back for another show. And uh, we're going to be joined by John Marchetti. He's the area senior vice president for Gallagher Insurance. So we'll get to that in just a minute. First, let me tell you a little bit about Clark Ford. I'm in the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford is in Amory, Mississippi, 662. 257-1900 is the number. Call it, ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for, he'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's that simple. It's right to the bottom line. There's no hassle, no haggle. You get the quote and the rest is up to you. You can use it as a gauge to shop around, that's fine. Or uh, you can do what I've done 3 times now and let's get into a Clark Ford Listen, you'll love the product. More than anything, you'll love the service. Corey always says, I want to be your car guy. I want to be your truck guy. People say, hey, what does that mean? Call the number. You'll start to find out. 662-257-1900. And, Martin, before uh, we get into the show, tell the people a little bit about Pinnacle Trust and how they can get in touch with you all.
1: Indeed. <clears throat> Man, happy to be back. Um, happy to have John with me in the, in the studio today. Uh, also, I keep Stacy keeps reminding me that... Um, we named our studio the pelican club studio from a piece of art he did and he's like dude you never say our studio's name and he's like you you're you're gonna do that today so i said all right captain so i'm coming john and i are coming to you from the pelican club studio we're not sponsored it's just something cool that stacy drew uh anyway sorry for my little my little down the rabbit hole there but um yeah, so you know our listener, our regular listeners kind of have probably sick and tired of our story. But if there's anyone out there listening for the first time, um, you know one of the things that Stacy envisioned when he started our firm, you know, almost 25 years ago, was that we would be on the same side of the table as our clients, meaning that our interests were aligned with our clients. So the big difference there is that you know in the past, the way that a lot of people who gave investment advice were compensated was um <clears throat> by a commission. So they gave the advice, they earned their commission up front and if your investment went in the toilet, you know, they made the same amount of money even if the client lost all their money. Uh the way that Stacy designed us is that uh we're on the we're in the same boat as our client, so our income is attached to um our client's account value, meaning that if our client's account value grows, our income grows. <clears throat> if our client's account value falls, then our income falls. So it's in our best interest to protect and to grow our clients' savings. So if you have been doing it on your own, and especially through all of the corona times, and you have a knot in your stomach, or you now have high blood pressure that you didn't have before, and you're ready to uh, either have a co-pilot or turn it over completely, give us a call, uh, 601-957-0323. Um, we'd love to sit down with you. There's a piece of the of the investment um, piece that you know, a lot of folks can't do on their own, which is the planning part. That's the thing that we're really, really good at. Uh, we'd love to help folks figure out their financial future. Um, and you can also reach us uh, through email, info at pintrust.com. We're really active on social media. You can find us on Facebook, um, either the Pinnacle Trust page or the Mind on My Money page. We are, we'll respond to you really quickly. So if you're tired of doing it on your own, uh, give us a shout, 601 957 Zero three two three, and I'll kind of I'm going to introduce John a little bit today, Neil, if you don't mind. Uh, so John Marchetti and I've we've we've known each other for a little while. He's uh, he's helped us a lot with our business at Pinnacle, and we'll talk a little bit about his business as well. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to highlight because it seems, and I don't know if we do this on purpose, um, we tend to have a lot of 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 Ole Miss grads or alum. Uh, on the show, and John is uh, is a Mississippi State alum, so I thought we could talk a little bit about football and the Pirates and what's going on there. But also, and I'll let John kind of tell the story organically. There's something really cool uh, that he did with the Mississippi State baseball team. Was, was it when you were a student, or I was
2: uh, fresh out of college,
1: fresh out of college, in the early 80s. awesome. So I'm gonna let him tell that story a little bit, and then uh, and then we'll get cranked up. But so, Neil, are you cool if we start off talking a little? college football first sure I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're happy that college football is is swinging and is back into action
0: I don't think happy adequately describes it <laughs> you know I mean we've, we've had this conversation and I'm not going to take John's time here but people <coughs> say are you glad college football's back and I'm like there's a difference between uh wanting college football and needing sure. college football yeah your livelihood
1: it, depends on it yeah
0: yeah I mean i I want college football, I wanted college football to come back I would have missed it had it been had it been gone, but from you know just a pure personal standpoint, like if I'd worked in another field, I'd have missed it it'd have been some Saturdays would have been a little melancholy at times I would have thought, yeah, you know today would have been the day that you know, Alabama played LSU, or this would have been the Florida-Georgia game, or this would have been the day that, you know, Michigan played Ohio State, or whatever. But there's a difference, man, when, when you realize, and I did, I, over the course of the five months that we wondered whether football would happen, there, 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 was, there was a realization that if there were no college football, that would mean there was probably no college sports for a year yeah. and from a pure yeah. business from a pure yeah. business standpoint. I mean, most of the budgets are, are
1: created for I don't, football, right?
0: I don't Yeah. And, and from a, from a business standpoint, I, I don't know. I mean, we would have held on or what, whatever that would have looked like, but what I, what I realized was, you know, a site that, that I've built in a podcast network that, that I've built over over a 12 plus year period it was going to just get decimated. And that, there was a depression that came in. So I'll be honest, when I turned on, uh, you know, I went to, to graduate school at Louisiana Monroe. Yeah. And I turned on the ULM Army game on Saturday morning. I watched it too, man. And a good friend of mine, uh, you know, coaches or coached at West Point. He's retired. But uh, that game came on, and I didn't get, like, emotional about it. But I felt something. You know what I mean? I mean, I, in my soul, like a sense of just kind of relief, like, okay, they're, they're really going to play. And then, you know, yesterday Lane Kiffin was asked a COVID question, of course. And, you know, he said, hey, we just did another round of testing and nobody's positive. We've got a couple of guys in quarantine, but it kind of looks like we're going to be okay. And you just go, oh, thank God. And, and, and I, I'll, I mean, people, I've said this consistently, this is the one year that if you're an SEC fan, whether you... Whether you are uh, an Alabama fan or a Mississippi State fan or Tennessee or Vanderbilt or whoever, this is the year that from at least a health standpoint, if you're not cheering for all 14 teams, you don't get it.
1: Yep. I agree. I agree. I agree. So John, what about, what about your, your bulldogs, man? I mean, I'm, so I, I, all full disclosure, I'm a Millsaps guy. I went to Millsaps, um, but my dad was University of Miami grad. So I kind of grew up a hurricane and then my mom went to a little Bible school, but she was a rebel. So we grew up, you know, watching the rebels, but you guys had, I mean, so there was excitement at Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin, but then the pirate was a phenomenal, I thought it was a phenomenal land for, for Mississippi state. And I'm excited. I was so excited to see the pirate in the sec. So how, what's, what's the Mississippi state fan base?
2: Yeah, we're, we're excited, uh, about leech. Um, you know, uh, it kind of came out of the blue. Uh, I mean, obviously we had to hire a higher coach, but right. I, I don't think very many of us thought it would be Mike Leach. I didn't.
1: Uh, I didn't either. I was hopeful just because press conferences are going to be awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. His
2: <laughs> press conferences are amazing, and uh, uh, I just hope he I hope he doesn't step off too far into any 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 subject that gets him or us in trouble. But uh, you know, ironically, uh, a few years ago. Bell Haven uh, hired Hal Mummy. You may remember that. He stayed the Bell Haven coach for a short time. And a friend of mine at Bell Haven gave me a book by Hal Mummy. This is five or six years ago. That Hal Mummy wrote about his own uh, career. And uh, it was called The Perfect Pass. It's a neat, it's really a pretty fascinating book. But in it, he talked about his first uh, staff, his, his offensive line coach was, was Mike Leach. And, and it goes on from there, you know, and all through their time at Kentucky and all. And so I really became fascinated with, with Leach's story as much or more than Mummies through reading that book, but never never thought about him one day being State's coach. But uh, I think he's good, gonna be good for State. Um, it's gonna be hard to judge, in my opinion, it's gonna be hard to judge anybody this season. I'm talking about State, Ole Miss, Alabama, whoever. Um, it's just such a strange dynamic with COVID and all but um, I'm looking forward to having him there and I think I think he's going to do a good job for state and, and I think who, who can say but I think he'll he'll want to stay for a while he's 50 I think he's 58 years old he's in his late 50s so you would think that that he would want to do this for a while and not not continue to jump um, but hopefully he'll Hopefully, he'll do good for
0: state. Yeah, you know, he gets a reputation for jumping that I really don't think is very fair. He, he, he was at Texas Tech for a good oh, while. Yeah. And yeah. then he was at Washington State for, yeah. I don't know how many years, yeah. seven? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So on, for a man. while. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, he's, he's moved around from job to job. But, but, you know, if you stay in today's college football, if you stay at a program, anything five years or over, you've been there a while. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the days of, of guys who coach for 30 years at one program, I'm not saying it's over. It's going to happen. Like, I think Dabo Sweeney's going to stay at Clemson, for example. Yeah. But those are you few. And, yeah. You know, I, like, I, I don't – the guy at Oklahoma, who's, whose name's escaping me right now, I don't, I don't have any idea why, but, you know, he, he's going to take a pro job. There's no question that, that Lincoln Riley is yeah. going to coach in the NFL. Uh, you know, I, I just think – I think the days of – Guys staying at a program for 12, 15 years, I just think that's going to be really rare. You know, Dan Mullen was at Mississippi State for, what, nine years? Yeah, it was a while. You know, and, and so now he's at Florida. You know, if, if Dan stays at Florida for, say, another seven or eight years and then maybe, I, I don't know, it just takes a Big Ten job, just name it for the hell of it, people will say, oh, he's a jumper. Yeah, if you stay at a program for a decade, you're not jumping. I so I, I, I agree with you. I think Leach is there for a while. Listen, here's the thing about Leach. Leach wanted an SEC gig. Uh, you know, he, he had his eye on, on Kentucky a few years ago when it looked like that might open up. Um, you know, he was almost the Tennessee coach before Phil Fulmer put the kibosh on that. So he's wanted to get in this league for a while. And, you know, he's at, at state, and it's an interesting fit. It's such a transition from what they've had in the past to, to him from a personality standpoint, from a scheme standpoint. And you know, and he like Kiffin and like Sam Pittman and like Elia Drink, which they've they've all been had any momentum that they could have kind of picked up over the course of the spring and the summer, all of that got derailed by something that was completely out of their control. So he's he's kinda of having to restart the engine a little bit, you know, like when your computer your computer goes out <laughs> and you have to just restart it completely. Yep. You know usually fixes happy, the problem though. It usually does, and I think it's gonna be fine. I think, you know, Actually, I th- I think that, that all of these guys at the different places, the, the four new coaches in the league, they all, in in their unique ways, kind of fit those places a little bit. Now, they're all difficult jobs. Let's keep it real. Yep. nobody Nobody's <laughs> going to talk about – if you talk about elite SEC jobs, no one's going to say Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, or Missouri are elite SEC jobs. They're not. But those are all jobs that have had success, and you can do it there. You just have to – you have to be very efficient.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm I'm excited for an SEC football season um this year. And you know, and and I think some of it and I know we the last few podcasts Neil you and I have talked about the fatigue from COVID and it's just I, it almost feels like that's the first one of the first breaths of of what a normal a normal life looks like is having college football on Saturdays, and even if it's in a different shape than we're accustomed to, you know, I mean, and I guess the the deal with watching it on TV with no fans in the stadium, like, I watched the Iowa State game, um, you know, and they had the band and the cheerleaders and whatnot in the stadium. I didn't care, but also, I think we talked about this uh, several podcasts back, too, Neil, was with the, you know, I watch a lot of uh, Premier League soccer from England, and they rarely show the fans on the you know when they're when they're seeing it live video, I mean occasionally when the ball goes out of bounds and they throw it in you'll see the camera pan up and you'll see fans there but uh I mean you hear the fan noise, but the there's not there's not a ton of attention- but there's no bands there's no the fanfare that, like we have in college football doesn't exist in the premier League so i'm it's kind of weird I'm accustomed to watching you know uh, a sport that where the fans are not an issue, so it didn't bother it, me at all
0: John, I'm curious to get your perspective as a. When you watched the game, to me, college football was the the one, and and again, it was just one week, and it was just some weird games. I'll use Georgia Tech and Florida State as an example because I watched watched a good bit of that on on Saturday night. Um, It felt more different to me, not worse necessarily, just different than, say, the NFL did, where the NFL games kind of felt like NFL games. I know they didn't sound exactly the same, but they sort of looked the same. Uh, it's like Major League Baseball. I've gotten used now to there not being fans in the stands and the games look like Major League Baseball games. I did think the college game looked and sounded remarkably different than what you know we've come accustomed to over the years.
1: Did you get to watch any games this weekend, John?
2: You know, I hate to admit it, but I didn't. Um, I, um, it just was one of those weekends where I – And I think part of it is I've gotten so accustomed to not watching games, I've got to get geared back up to to my weekend revolving around (laughs) that.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because it's one of the things that I think the pro sports have to be really careful not to get off on a political tangent here. But, you know, their ratings are down. Yeah. And I saw that it was like Sunday night game was down to
1: like 28%, almost 30% year over year.
0: John brings up a great point. Humans are creatures of habit. Yep. I mean, you know, if you ever, if you ever, like for example, when you go on a weight loss plan, if you do it right, and someone's going to tell you, hey, it takes three weeks for this to become a habit. Yep. If you, you know, if you uh, decide that you're going to get into an exercise plan, yeah, they'll tell you, hey, you got to do this for three weeks, then it becomes a habit. Your body starts to want it, and that kind of thing. We went a long time, a without, really long time. Yeah. And it becomes a habit to not watch sports. And that's why some of these leagues better be – I mean, listen, do what you want to do. You know me pretty well, Martin. I'm a live and let live. Do what you want to do. But understand there are ramifications. And if you turn people off when they try to come back, they might leave for good. It's, yeah. it's one of the reasons that, that these schools like Ole Miss and Mississippi State and Alabama and Auburn and all these schools are a little nervous about – the limited attendance in the stadium because there's let's take Mississippi State for example I guarantee you there's somebody there in Madison who's been driving to Starkville seven times a year for these games yeah they load up the kids and head up to Starkville and you got to feed them and you got to have a place to stay maybe and you look for a place to tailgate and it's kind of hot in September and then it's kind of cold in November and maybe it rains on you and little Jenny gets a little whiny about it coming home and, uh, you know, you start, you get back on Sunday and you got to get ready for another week. And, you know, maybe you've been thinking about, Hey, it doesn't mean that I don't love the bulldogs, but maybe just, maybe let's buy that big screen TV and let's, let's turn that <laughs> extra room into a media room. Yeah. And you know what? We could watch these games from home and, uh, the, the, a six pack of beer is cheaper than one Coke at the stadium. And, uh, <laughs> This is you true. know, like we can light the grill and, and we can watch the game. And if it doesn't go the way we want it to go, maybe it's it's state and Alabama and Alabama does to state what Alabama does to everybody. And it's in the third quarter. We don't have to get in the car and drive home in silent. We can just flip the channel. And and all of a sudden people go, I like it better this way. That That is what all of these schools, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, all of them, they're a little worried about it, that people are going to see – a year without going to the games isn't as bad as they thought it might be. And when it comes back to full attendance, they might say, you know what? I think we're going to keep doing it that way. I liked it better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a possibility. The the one I'm curious about, and and John, I would be curious to hear your input too, is I mean, I could see that for college football. One of the things that we recently got into – was um was the base college baseball and and i have a son that's he's 16 and he he loves football so you know i could take him to a game he didn't care we we go to ole miss we could go to state he's not going to care he's going to love it but he loved college baseball like we don't like watching this is going to people are going to probably hate me for this we don't like watching baseball on tv sorry neil um but taking him to a live game whether it was you know at Ole Miss, or whether it's at in Starkville, he loved college baseball. So I wonder, Neil, if that's possible that football could have the a decrease. But sports like baseball, it's like you know, it's kind of hard to replicate that experience in the house. Where and I totally get what you're saying, Neil. About I can fire up my grill, watch it on TV, you know. But it's you know baseball, and and I guess the SEC football for the most part does have a lot of. um pageantry around the game too but I don't know baseball feels different and I was never we just started doing college baseball um you know I guess two seasons ago not this last season that was interrupted but the season before we started going and Christopher loved it man like he because he could also he would meet some of his buddies there they would run around the stadium and you know they're watching or run around the ballpark they're watching the game hanging out socializing whereas you know at the football game it's like we were in our seats and he loves college football too, but we were just in our seats and it was him and me and and it wasn't him and his buddies. Does that make sense at all?
0: Not just uh, yeah, to no no it, it nonsense. It makes, again, the the whole pandemic thing is <coughs> changed. and this, this season where there's so much COVID concern and all of that stuff, it it's going to change people's attendance habits for sure. And so therefore it's going to change people's viewing habits. And habit is the key word there. Yeah, You know, you – you. like John said, I mean, you know, this is this is that year where that opening weekend where I can't remember who Mississippi State was scheduled to open with, uh, but that game didn't happen. Ole Miss was scheduled to open in, in Houston against Baylor, and that game <laughs> didn't happen. And so all of a sudden it doesn't take long before you're like, okay, well, Saturday suddenly means something different. That's the challenge is going to be for these schools to – Getting back to normal, in my opinion, is not going to happen as fast as a lot of people at the schools hope and think that it will.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong about that. Hey, I'm going to – Neil, while we're talking about baseball, uh, there's just something we have – so John has – there's a pretty cool little fun fact about John I didn't know about until until today. Stacy was telling me about it, tell us about it pre-show. But um, John has a a cool connection with Mississippi State baseball. John, tell – Tell that story a little bit. Like, how did you – well, before, I don't want to, to to open the – let the cat out of the bag, but tell your story about Mississippi State baseball, your connection there, and then how you ended up being able to make this connection and make this thing happen. It's a pretty cool story.
2: Okay, well, um, so I was a student at State in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, loved Mississippi State, loved all kind of – sports followed all the sports I was not good enough to play any sports in college but I was at every ball game I could get to and uh, and also uh, on the side uh, I guess as a hobby I like to doodle I like to sketch draw draw things and so when I got out of college in the uh, I got out in 1983 uh, just one day just peddling around at my house um, I was drawing pictures of Mississippi State baseball players in action. and I would I would draw the baseball player uh, Rafael Palmero or Will Clark or whoever, but instead of a state uniform on him, I'd put a, like a New York Yankees uniform on him or a Detroit Tigers. And then and then I redrew it and I put the New York Yankees uniform on him, but instead of the NY over the heart, I put the MS of Mississippi State. and I thought, man that really looks pretty good. And like Detroit Tiger, instead of the big D over mm-hmm. the heart, I put a MS. And so, anyway, I, I kept refining that, and I thought, man, these these are some great-looking uniforms for Mississippi State baseball. They look a lot better in my mind. They look a lot better than the ones they wear. And so my wife, uh, you got to remember this, is almost 40 years ago, she says, you know, you ought to tell Coach Polk about that. And I'm like, Coach Polk? I mean, he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> and uh, – but lo and behold, I, I put together a, a, some sketches, wrote him this letter, uh, put it on my work letterhead, uh, typed it on my little typewriter, and sent it over to me. It basically just said, hey, coach, I really think y'all could look a lot better if you wore these uniforms that I just drew here. And uh, if you ever want to talk about it, give me a call. And, uh, and you know... <laughs> I kind of got it off my chest. Well, a few days later, my phone at work rang, and you got to remember that's in the days. There's no caller ID. There's none of that stuff. Right. And I pick up the phone, and it, the guy says, is this John Marchetti? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, this is Ron Polk. And I said, I laughed, because I figured it was a friend playing a joke on me. And and he said, what's the problem? And I said, come on, you know, who who is this? And he said, it's Ron Polk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <and, laughs> So sure enough, we, we get into this conversation, and he says things like, man, these these, these uniforms look great, blah, blah, blah. And he, he said, do you mind if I get on speakerphone with my assistant coach, Pat McMahon, uh, who's later succeeded Ron Polk as the coach, and I was like, sure. So we end up having this 15-, 20-minute conversation over the phone with these two guys, and the way the, phone, the conversation ends is, look, we really like this. With your permission, we're just going to incorporate this into our uniforms and if we need anything from you, we'll get back to you. And I'm like, okay. We get off the phone. I don't think much about it. I told my wife, but I thought nothing will really happen. Well, then the next season, they open the season and they're wearing my the uniform the pinstripes. Yeah. Well, they actually they started with the, what I call the Detroit Tiger look. Oh, okay. And then they adopted the. They put the. They came in with the pinstripes two or three years later. But, and, I mean for. You know, over 30 years now, they've worn that uniform. Sometimes, in some seasons, that, that's all they would wear, and then some seasons they would get away from it and wear it every now and then. And, and today they don't they don't wear it as much. They still wear a pinstripe with the MS on the sleeve. But, um, yeah, it really happened. And and I think one of the things about the story that is so, uh, I guess you say, uh, uh, fun to think about is if that that could probably never happen today. Um, things are so much more sophisticated, um, you know. Uh, just a just a fan drawing some uniforms and sending a a letter to the head baseball coach who actually reads it, shows it to his assistant coach, says don't these look good, and then calls the fan and and does it. Um, and that yeah. probably wouldn't happen.
1: I imagine day. with like all the uniform providers, yeah, out there and like yeah. sponsorship stuff they probably and i have no idea they probably have all that stuff planned out for years well, I
0: bet they do. For, at mississippi state well everything now goes through adidas that's right so it's a it's, yeah, a, it's, a, major, it's a major project yeah. i gotta tell you as a uniform guy
2: yeah
0: i love like mississippi states the, the the pinstripe look i love that the one you're talking about the tigers look i like that clean look Adidas, this isn't me picking on State. This is me picking on Adidas. Adidas has ruined so many uniforms <laughs> that it all, it's criminal. Yep,
2: yep. So, Neil, let me say this real quick to you. Um, so, in the early to mid-1970s, Mississippi State wore a pinstripe uniform. It didn't have the MS on it the way I did it, but it they did wear a pinstripe. And then when, when I got to State in the late 70s, Ron Polk had taken over and they were wearing this ugly polyester, it it looked like a church (laughs) softball uniform. I mean, really. But Ole Miss, Jake Gibbs was a coach, you know, and Ole Miss at that time started wearing pinstripes. And uh, you can, you know, you can look back at Ole Miss team photos from the late 70s. They looked great. They were white, blue pinstripes. It said Ole Miss in cursive across the chest. And, uh, And I remember Ole Miss having a I thought a great looking uniform uh, when I was in school in my school Mississippi State. I didn't think looked real good.
0: Yeah, and, and everyone wants to get away from pinstripes now. I love pinstripes. Yeah, I love the like the. Like again, I could we could do hours of of uh, <laughs> uniform talking and, and yeah. probably fall asleep. But uh, I love the Yankees home uniform. I love the Cubs home uniform. That Tigers uniform is. The, their home uniform is absolutely spectacular. I absolutely love it, yeah. and and I like the MS interlock more than I like like Bulldogs across the front or yeah. in Ole Miss's case where they'll put Ole Miss across the front or, or Rebels. I, I like, I like the the pinstripe with the UM interlock, but yeah. the the kids don't like that as much. And That's so when you're that, you're you're going you're, you're recruiting the kids, so you got to do what the kids like. That's what they it's say. funny how uniforms get. Uniforms change as as we go, and and the classic ones get away, and, and it's like in the NFL sometimes they'll, you know the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for example will have a a throwback day where they go back to those creamsicle uniforms, and yeah. I'm like no you wear those every single week. <laughs> Patriots, are, are, yeah they're awesome. Yeah, the Patriots old helmet where the the, the Patriots you know is kind of in a three point stance. Yep. Yeah, I'm like that uniform is fantastic. Why would you? Ever wear anything else? But, it's timeless. It's timeless. yeah, it's awesome. But 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 apparently others disagree with yes. you me. <laughs>
2: That's right.
1: Well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears on us a little bit too. But we'll we'll kind of stay on the the topic. Um, you know, one of the things that you talked about, John, was so you got a phone call at your office. I wanted to bring you on the show too to talk a little bit about you know what you do and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how you got started and then, you know, where you are today. But so I'm going to, I'll start prefacing saying, you know, a lot of my buddies when um, we were all in school, uh, you know, a lot of them wanted to, you know, work on, they were either going to be doctors or, you know, work on wall street or do, you know, some, something with finance and investing. And then there was a large sect of the guys that I graduated high school with that went into, you know, commercial, uh, insurance and, or for businesses. And there was a lot less folks that went into um, the investment world, you know, that I'm in. And so it's kind of weird. We have this in our industry, in the investment industry, we have this huge gap between um, the advisors that have, you know, the, the, the books of business now, like the, the more senior advisors are a lot older and the guys that are coming in, there's about a 20 year age gap because most of the guys that are my age that would fill the middle went into your industry, into uh, you know commercial P and C or commercial, um, you know insurance. So tell us, I want you to tell your story a little bit. You know, so you went to Mississippi State. How did you get into? Because you're in a tough business. It's a pretty, it's a cutthroat kind of dog eat dog uh, business that you're in. And I mean, I know your personality type is 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 uh is a really kind of a soft-spoken gentle dude but i mean that's a you're in a cutthroat big shark teeth uh type industry so i'd love for you to tell your story uh you know like how you got into the business you know and i know that you had a very successful career and then kind of what you're doing now um i know you're still in the business but you know you had your own i know you had your own agency and anyway i don't want to steal your thunder but you know, for a lot of the younger guys or or gals, not just guys, that are out there listening to, and I mean, your industry is a great industry to have a great career. Um, and maybe some advice you'd give to to some of those folks trying to break into your industry because I know it's I know it's tough.
2: Well, uh, thanks, Martin. So, uh, as I said a, min- a few minutes ago, I graduated from state in '83 and. Uh, at the time, that was a fairly tough time in the economy. Reagan was a few years into office, but we were, we were in a semi-recession, um, and 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 jobs were not easy to find. Um, when I graduated from state, I had three job offers. I had an offer to work for the Marathon Oil Company in Findlay, Ohio. Okay. Which I can't really tell you where that is, but. Um, and then Deposit Guarantee National Bank in Jackson, uh, and they wanted to offer me to to work in their trainers, you know, trainee program. And then my father was an independent insurance agent. And he had a business with another man, and they offered me to come in with them. Well, long story short, I was um, about to ask uh, Linda Lloyd to be my wife, and she said yes, and she still is. And um, and I knew that if I we're going to marry her. I probably wouldn't wouldn't be a good idea to tell her we're going to relocate to Findlay, Ohio, and uh, and and then the, the bank was a good opportunity, but it was no better or worse of an opportunity than the insurance business. When I got in the insurance business, it was really the opposite, or it was different than the way you describe it now. There was a, it, it was similar to the way you described the financial uh, services business in that there was a real dearth of young people working in insurance I didn't know all that I didn't plan it out that way but when I got in uh, there were a lot of men uh, and women who were you know 25 35 40 years older than me a ton of them and then there were very few people my age which was my early 20s Um, it was a it was a tough slog for for the first eight or so years of my career from the time I was 22 till I was about 30 um, I, I remember one of the things I wanted so much was to get some gray hair uh, and, it, and you know, Martin looking at me now, I've got a lot of gray hair. But, it's funny.
1: I, I had the same, I had the same desires yeah, when I was in that, yeah. that age range of below 30, because I would be talking to people and they would say things like, you know, uh, I've, you know, i I give kids my, you know, my grandkids are your age and I give them money and I never expect to see a dollar. And I was like, man, if I could just have some gray hair, yeah. I would just, it'd be a little bit of, uh, yeah. uh of easier go at it. So I, t- I could totally relate to that.
2: It, it really would. And, um, I'll tell you a quick quick aside. Of if, if, if I'm sorry if I go too far here, but back in the day, in the early 80s, um, the insurance agency, we did our banking with with First National Bank, which is now called Trustmark. Mm-hmm. And So uh, the bookkeeper in our office would prepare the daily uh, deposit, and, and she'd put it in a little book, and she'd give it to me, and she'd let me take it down to uh, Trustmark, really to give me something to do. And I would park in the garage at Trustmark, uh, which was on the corner of Capitol Street and uh, whatever that is uh, northwest. and and the, the I'd take it to the same teller every day, and the teller liked me. And so she would stamp my parking ticket with unlimited parking. <laughs> and then what I would do is i would I would turn, I'd go out of the bank after having made the deposit, and I would walk up and down Capitol Street to just to try to run into people, so I could ask them if I could uh, do business with them. And that's such a different day and time, but um, I mean, I actually that actually helped me build a little bit of a career. And because in those days, everybody was working on Capitol Street or nearby, and they would actually be out on the street walking. And uh, so obviously it's different now, but um, yeah, it, it, you know from there things grew and grew and people like Stacy Wall, um, he and I were friends anyway. And then he goes and starts his own company, Pinnacle Trust, and he says, hey, I need somebody to write the property casualty insurance on it. Would you do it? And I was happy to do it. And, uh, and I was really fortunate and blessed that, that it grew from there like that with a lot of people that just knew me and liked me and I liked them. And, and a lot of those people, like again, like Stacy, they became successful in what they were doing. And as a business grows, its insurance premiums grow. So if you can just get in there with them in the beginning and take good care of them when they're small, there's a good chance that if they're successful, they'll pay more and more and more through the years in insurance. And that, that happened for me.
1: You know, and it's funny because, you know, our business is is really not much different. It's all building relationships. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of times, you know, some of the guys that are my age, uh, you know, in their, you know, I'll just call it mid career, um, are, are starting to have some of the fruits of the labors in there, you know, that were the seeds that were planted, you know, eight, 10 years ago are coming you know, into fruition. And, uh, I know when I was real young in the business, uh, I had the misconception that, you know, you would, you meet a business owner or or meet a physician or something like that. And they are already established and that I was going to be able to go in and become their advisor. Well, no, I was like 10 years too late uh, at that point. So you, I mean, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It's funny. There's the similarities of it's really relationships and taking care of people. You just solve people's problems as it relates to their, you know, risk management with within their business and their insurance needs. And mine is just with, their investment or cash flow or retirement needs. We essentially do the same. We're, you know, we're assessing risk for clients. The just the risks are just different risks and yeah, different there's pieces there's of the puzzle.
2: A lot of similarities. There really are.
1: Yeah, no, there are. So tell us a little bit, that was a really cool story because, you know, and I guess I, I wanna tell a little bit of, of of my story and how it's different from yours because, you know, you were walking up Capitol Street uh, you know, when I was, when I was just starting in the business, I was doing something that doesn't exist anymore either, which was, um, cold calling people on telephones and you can't do that anymore. Um, so, you know, I would call people at night, you know, and it probably made a lot of people mad, but that was the best time to, to potentially get an answer. Um, cause I didn't know these people. I was essentially going through a phone book and just dialing numbers and hoping that I would get someone to talk to. But um, that was the way that I started building my business and it sucked and it was awful. And I failed my, you know, my very first firm that I worked for was, was A.G. Edwards. Great firm. I had a great boss there, Butch McKenzie, um, and then a great mentor, Artie Finkelberg um, mentored me. But, you know, I was 23 years old and, and I flopped. Um, but what happened was I went to DC, I got some experience uh, working for the investment consulting firm up there. And then when I came back, when I was working with Edward Jones, it was, man, it was brutal. It was door to door. I knocked on 125 doors a day, commercial doors and residential doors. But they told me if you knock on 125 doors and you just ask these questions, you will be successful. And at this time I had like two kids that were, you know, five and three. And it was like, I mean, failure was an option always, but failure was not an option. I had to feed these kids. I had to make, you know, a living and I knew I wanted to be in this business. So I knocked on 125 doors a day for a year and a half and it sucked. And uh, one of the tricks I learned, sorry, I'm taking your time going on a tangent. I tore my knuckles up the first month that I was doing it. And, um, there was this, obviously a lot more senior experienced person than me and he was, and he had the gray hair and I was talking to him and I was just complaining. He was one of my mentors. I was like, man, my knuckles are bloody. And he was like, why are you knocking on the door with your knuckles? And I was like, what? Like, that's what you knock on the door? He's like, no, man, get a golf ball and put it in your pocket. It makes the same noise, and it saves your knuckles. And I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, that makes so much sense, but I didn't have enough sense to think about, you know, my knuckles are bloody. Is there anything else? Because they just told me, knock on the door, knock on 125 doors. But he was like, dude, get a golf ball and – put it between your, you know hold it like a baseball and knock it sounds just like yeah. knuckles not just like oh my gosh yeah so yeah that was me getting that was that was the hard way of getting in the business but I you know I built a successful business and you built a successful business too so you had your you had your own agency right I did. so tell, tell us a little bit about that how long you had it what you did to build it yeah. where'd you start and where did you end
2: yeah. So I mentioned uh, that when I got in the business, I went to work for my father. Uh, He retired, I don't know, six, seven, eight years later. Um, And when he did, after he retired, I set out on my own. And so I started my own agency in um, 1998, uh, January 1998. And, uh, you know, small deal, built it up, um, had it for 20 years. uh, And then in 2008, it built it up. It, we we really put together a great team, and that was the key, is the team. We we some really good people came in to work with us, to partner with us, and uh, so then uh, in 2018 we uh, sold the firm to a larger version of ourselves called Gallagher. Gallagher is they're an independent insurance agency like I was, but they're a whole lot bigger. Uh, with the time we sold our our firm was called Marchetti Roberts and Brickell. And at the time we sold, we had 30 employees, wow. and uh, Gallagher had 30,000. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Just
1: a little yeah. but larger. Just yeah. a little bit larger.
2: And, and so I, we've, we've all stayed with them now. It's you know a little over two years, and uh, it's been great. we enjoyed. We're just getting to do the same things we always did, but we don't have any management responsibilities, yeah. which is nice.
1: Sure. Yeah. I know that, like, people are the hardest part of the equation. Uh, just like Neil was talking about earlier, um, with this, this was pre-show about a message board and not yeah. being able to control people. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah people are, they are sometimes the hardest part of the equation. They are. So before I know, and, and we're, we're starting to, to get towards time, but before we do, I wanted to, to ask you, cause there's, I mean, a lot of people who are looking at going into financial services or maybe even folks that are mid-career and they're looking for, um, you know, something different they've done you know they were a teller or a you know a client service rep or just done something different maybe they did pharmaceutical sales or something like that and they're looking for something different i mean your industry is a phenomenal industry to have a great career and, and ours is too and but it's hard to break into ours i'm assuming that it's you know it's it's tough to break into yours too um what kind of advice would you give to folks that would be you know might be looking at at you know, becoming a insurance guy on the commercial side versus you know doing like residential home and auto and stuff like that. What advice would you
2: yeah? Would you give? Well, one thing about uh, property casualty insurance, whether it is on the commercial side or on the uh, personal side, is in a credit-based economy, which we have here in the United States, everybody buys insurance. So they may not want to buy it. I, yeah. Very few people sit up at night thinking, "Man, I can't wait to buy some insurance tomorrow." <laughs> but they have to buy it, <laughs> right? And so um, that means you have a prospect-based. Literally, everybody's your prospect, um, if you if you will. Um, it is tough. You, I would I would say to a young person, um, uh, young in age or young in experience, either way, uh, you need to. I would advise you to to get with a mentor, uh, get into a firm where somebody uh, that has more experience than you could and would be willing to mentor you, take you along with them on their calls, tell them, tell you why they did it this way rather than that way, introduce you to clients, that kind of thing, because um, there's just a lot of stuff in in this business that you really can't learn out of a book, Uh, and so that would be a a piece of advice. Uh, And then I would say, um, you know, gravitate toward your likes like for me when I was a when I was a boy uh, starting in the ninth grade every summer after the uh, after school would be out I would work construction now it's just a grunt but that's what I did So I was very familiar with construction job sites and that kind of thing so when I got in the insurance business in my early 20s it just was a natural thing for me to try to write insurance for construction companies or contractors because I kind of knew that I knew enough about that industry and so I would say if you, if you get into the property casualty world, commercial, find an area uh, that, that interests you or that you have a background with or you have some friends in and, and really make yourself uh, as expert as you can in insurance for those kind of people, those kind of professionals, commercials, commercial clients, and then and just keep, keep going after it.
1: So essentially like find a niche but it's in a group of people that you actually like being around, and
2: yeah, yeah, that you like being around, or that you like. For instance, if someone in your business, Martin, were to leave your business to come over to our business, I would say their natural uh, uh, clientele base would be financial services organizations because that's what they did. They know that business, uh, and and it would give them a ready-made uh, book of prospects.
1: Sure, and then maybe even. <laughs> some of their legacy clients that, yeah, you know, that right. they took care of that were business owners. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's anything that's where you can have a great career or you're building it yourself is going to be hard to build. If, if it were easy, like everyone would do it. It's just like Neil with you, with your, all of your shows that you do and the success that you have with your podcasting and, and your site. I mean, if everyone could be Neil McCready, then, then it, then it would be, easy right but
0: but there's only one nil. it'd be (laughs) a scary world no you know it's funny i was listening to john talk about you know walking the streets and uh, and approaching people and that takes that takes such courage really Uh, you know i'm not going to spend a lot of time here talking about my career but my career is nowhere at 50 what i thought it was going to be at 35 not even close to what I thought it was going to be. And it's probably a lot better. The one thing I've learned, I I always tell my kids this, I tell my kids this all the time is that you cannot be afraid to fail. That's that. I think that's business lesson. Number one, if if you are, if you are afraid to fail, you will never succeed.
1: Yeah. You won't take the risk.
0: And, and then the other thing that I tell them, and, and I think this is true about any field that anyone's in. I use sports as an analogy because that's just what I do. The other day, Alec Mills, a pitcher for the Cubs, who was a walk-on at UT Martin, um, literally walked past the UT Martin practice field one day and watched their pitchers pitch and walked up to the coach and said, I think I could pitch for you. Ends up earning a spot on their roster. UT Martin. Not Mississippi State, not LSU, UT Martin. He goes, gets drafted. The couple years ago, the Kansas City Royals just say, we don't think you're good enough to pitch in the bigs. And they basically just let him go. When he, he latches on, he has to go toil in the minors for a while, and he ends up in the Cubs rotation this year because Jose Quintana – you know, One of their starting pitchers had a household accident right before the season began, and he injured a, 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 his thumb on his pitching hand. So Alex, Alec Mills is you know, pitching in the major leagues during a pandemic and empty stadiums, and the other day he threw a no-hitter against the Milwaukee Brewers. Most, most guys don't ever throw a no-hitter. And the whole thing was, you know, and, and I had to tell myself this because there's a few times in my career where I thought, you know, it's just its not going to work out. Just get out of it. Go do something else. You have to be the one person, you, you have to be the only person in your life who you allow to tell yourself that, hey, you can't do this. If other people tell you you can't do it, you can take that into consideration, but if you allow them to be the person that tells you, you'll always have regrets. You have to be the one that says, I'm, I'm going to continue down this path it's the one thing that I learned about myself, Martin. It's the reason this podcast exists today. I never knew 12 plus years ago when I lost my radio gig in Mobile, I never knew that I had an ounce of entrepreneurism in me. And it turns out it's probably my strongest professional attribute.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think there are, you know, the, there are people that are willing to take risks and build great things, whether it's podcasting, whether it's, you know, uh, in the insurance business. I mean, cause you know, but you, I, you have but to have that vision and that's I, not everyone has it. Not everyone I has it.
0: The young man when he, when he started, when I was that age, I, I didn't, I didn't have that level of maturity. I didn't have that level of courage. I, I didn't that literally walking on the street and trying to build your business from scratch like that is Incredibly courageous. You probably didn't think about it at that age. You probably were just thinking, "Hey, I'm just trying to eat." But, but when you look back on it, I suspect you look back and think, "Wow, I mean, that was that was. I mean, for lack of a better word, that was kind of ballsy."
2: You know, um, I know our time is short. I just want to say this too. In in as Martin, you asked me what would I say to younger people. Um, There are two passages of Scripture that come to my mind that I think should guide everybody. Uh, One of them is very familiar where Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And another is maybe not as familiar where um, the Lord said, do not despise the day of small things. And the first one, we all know it's the golden rule, but treat other people the way you would want to be treated. Um, when, When I go... I don't know anything about what how things work under the hood of my car, and when I go to a, a an auto a mechanic shop, um, I'm at their mercy, and um, I really hope that they'll treat me fair and that they'll they'll do for me what I need, but not any more, and they'll 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 do unto me as they would want me to do to them, and the do not despise the day of small things, Just as my daddy used to say, don't get too big for your britches don't get to thinking that you're above someone else or better than someone else or that some opportunity is beneath you or too small for you you just never know um and uh and again uh be humble and uh treat people the way you'd want to be treated and I, and and it, it'll pay off it, it it really it really does
1: no i mean i think that's that is uh that's great advice for for living our lives. Right. Period. Yeah. You know, not just business too, but you know, you're one thing you said and you're, you're totally right too, is, uh, I'm, I'm really vulnerable to a lot of class of people. And if a pipe burst in my house, uh, if a plumber tells me it's going to cost five grand, I mean, I have no idea whether it is or isn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Neil, are you trying to jump in there?
0: No, I was laughing because like yesterday I needed to have something done at my house that, if I had the skills to do it, I would have saved myself about $150. Yeah. But I, di- I don't have those skills, and I know myself well enough to know that it would have led to me breaking things, not like in a fit of rage, but I would have had to use a drill and a reverse drill, and I would have, I would have ended up making a giant mess. And 15 years ago, I would have stubbornly said, I'm going to do it, yep. and then had to spend a lot of money fixing the mess, and yesterday, in about two minutes, I said, what would that cost? And he told me, and I said, yep, can you do it this afternoon? He said, I can be there. I said, good enough. <laughs> I just just kind of learn. You learn your strengths. You learn your weaknesses. Enhance your strengths. And, you know, just try to sort of mitigate your weaknesses. And that's, that's what I've learned about myself. And I, I think that that applies in business. It applies in life. It, it applies in just about everything. You, you, you have to figure out who you are and come to peace with that.
1: I mean, you guys are both nailing, nailing great points too. And you know, and it's, you know, sometimes I think life, I get frustrated with life too, because things don't, and this is the selfish self-centered side of me. Things don't go the way that I, I want them to, or either I'm about to lose something that, you know, that I have. And it's funny because that happens in business all the time. You know, a deal that I think that I'm, I know for sure I've won, I lose, or I have a client that I've done my very level best taking care of them and then I get a transfer. And it's funny, Stacy and I were actually talking about that yesterday. I had I had a Monday yesterday. It was it was uh it was totally unexpected because my day, my morning was gonna be busy, I knew that, but my afternoon looked like it was gonna be not busy and um, you know, and, and I guess this rolls back to <laughs> something Neil was talking about at the very beginning of the show is I have zero control over what other people do. All I can do is is my best. And then you're right, Neil, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, uh, lean on your strengths, and then let other people and that's actually how Dasha and I ended up working together, you know, eight years ago was I took a real honest appraisal of all of my shortcomings, probably the most honest I've been with myself ever in my life. And I was like, these are all of my weaknesses. So when I was hiring folks at, for a partner, I was like, this has to be their strengths, they have to offset my weaknesses. And that's how Dasha and I got together, and she's still with us, um, and she's awesome. But, but yeah, you guys you guys are both right. You know, nailed it.
2: Um, my gener- I'm, I'm a little older than probably a lot of your listening audience, but my generation, one of our movie heroes was Clint Eastwood. Oh, absolutely. And, <laughs> and one, one of the best movie lines ever is from Dirty Harry when Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. And, uh, and that's so true.
1: Man, we're just dropping all kinds of like wisdom nuggets around here. <laughs> Everyone who listens to this show now, Neil, this might be our most, uh, like the the most nuggets we've dropped of, of wisdom, <laughs> in a show.
0: <laughs> I've never been accused of dropping nuggets of wisdom, so that's good. I'm pleased <laughs> good to for hear all
2: that. of us.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, I uh, really appreciate the time today very much. It was a lot of fun to visit with you. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: All right, that does it for this episode of Mind All My Money Podcast. Don't forget PinnacleTrust.com, pintrust.com, P-I-N-N, Trust.com. Tell the people at Pinnacle Trust that you heard about Pinnacle Trust on this podcast or any of the MPW Digital Network of Podcasts. You'll get 10% off your first year's fees. From Martin Palomo, I'm Neil McCready. That does it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, take care.